Welcome to Talkumentaries, where we'll discuss a different documentary each week. This week, we're discussing 13th. This 2016 American documentary by director Ava DuVernay explores the history of racial inequality in the United States, focusing on the fact that the nation's prisons are disproportionately filled with African Americans. It's currently streaming on Netflix. This podcast will contain spoilers, so listen at your own risk. Oh, Claire. <laughs> Haven't seen you in weeks. Yeah. How was your spring break? It was great. How was yours? Good. Good. Nice yeah. and relaxing. Yes, it was. And so this documentary was a little bit of a downer. <laughs> it but it was interesting. I um, wasn't clear on why it was called 13th until I started watching, and it turns out it's named for the constitutional amendment that says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. Right. So basically it said that slavery is not cool anymore. We're not going to do that anymore. But you can make people do things for free and keep them caged if you have convicted them of a crime. Right. So looking at that, it's still not necessarily easy to see the direct line between slavery and imprisonment, Mm -hmm. but I think this documentary did a good job of sort of walking us Mm -hmm. step by step through history, how slavery, once it was abolished, evolved over decades and decades and decades. They did a good job of making that, making the case for there to be a direct line between the two. Yeah, I think the argument was very clear as far as the political reasons why. I, I think I also need to, to make a disclaimer, you know, I'm a white female, so I'm as probably going to say some <laughs> incorrect things, you know, but you know, we all bring our own baggage and history, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. point of view to these things. I hope a lot of people will watch this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like it's really good information to know about, and... You know, I kind of was left thinking, you know, what can be done at this point? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm really glad that I watched it and have this knowledge now that this thing going on, because my life is so removed from the prison system. You know, I don't have sight of that unless I see this factual data. Right. And I thought they did a good job of giving us the history, the politics, and, you know, why things happened the way they did. Uh-huh. But I think the question is, what do we do now? I, I felt like this documentary was a good introduction to some of the bigger issues. Mm-hmm. And it is a huge and complex issue. America, the land of the free. Yeah. You know, we have these prisons that are filled with young men, and mm-hmm. most of them are African Americans, and they've been removed from their communities. And there are just so many cultural issues around this. It's so complex, you can't go into a lot of the details in a 90-minute documentary. But I thought thought it was a good introduction to the issues, Mm -hmm. and it was done in a factual way, Mm -hmm. and so I appreciated that. So I feel like it's a good starting point for some of the bigger issues. Yeah, I, like you, am a pasty white lady, (laughs) so I think my... (laughs) Initial reaction to this premise was, well, you can't really compare imprisonment to modern day imprisonment to slavery because you're only in prison because you did something wrong. And that's true whether you're white or black or brown Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
But when you start to watch this documentary and you see, even if the footage from throughout years and years of systematic you know, oppression Mm -hmm. leading up to this, even if that doesn't move you or persuade you in any way, when they put up the numbers, Mm -hmm. periodically they just throw some numbers up there and you see this running tally sort of clicking through the numbers. Here's how many people were in prison in the United States in 1990. Mm -hmm. And then it shows the update to, it clicks through the numbers to, you know, how many were in prison in 2000. That slaps you in the face. Mm -hmm. Our overall population didn't grow by that. Right. Amount. So, and why is it that one in 17 white males will end up in prison Mm -hmm. and one in four or one in three black males? Yes, one in three. Will end up in prison. And you know that it's not because black men are inherently more dangerous or violent. So, obviously, there's more to it than that. And I would hope that more people who look like us would open their minds to Mm -hmm. that possibility. Yes. I think everyone should at least try to watch this with an open mind and not a political agenda. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, I I feel like the documentary makers did a good job of keeping politics neutral. You know, they did not, you know, talk about how one party in particular or one historical event by mm-hmm. a particular politician created this issue it was a joint effort yes, <laughs> on the part of sure. both major parties and yeah. history there and they also made it more logical about why some of these policies were put into place you know the crime rate did go up mm-hmm. So politicians felt like they had to be tough on crime. And that does make logical sense. Mm -hmm. But the way that policy was implemented, things like mandatory minimums and, you know, abolishing parole and things that sound good in theory as far as cracking down on crime didn't really reduce the crime rate. Right. So we end up with these prisoners who are in for a long time, and many of them aren't violent criminals either. Right. It's astounding. The film starts with the U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. Yeah. One in four prisoners in the world is in America. That's crazy. It's 2.3 million prisoners. Uh-huh. That is crazy. According to the Prison Policy Initiative's website and their data is for 2010, white people make up 64% of the population, but 39% of the incarcerated population. Uh-huh. And black people are 13% of the general population, but make up 40% of the incarcerated population. Wow. So they're overrepresented. Yeah, for sure. Uh, additional information that wasn't touched on in the film that I found really interesting and see in the areas where we live. The prisons are disproportionately located in majority white areas. All of the prisons in my state that I know of are Mm -hmm. in rural white areas. So all the employment benefits are going to... The employees are mostly white. So the prisoners get removed from their communities, which is very disruptive, not just to the prisoner, but to their families who have to spend a lot of travel time to go visit, Mm -hmm. if they're able to at all. Mm -hmm. And it also means that the employment goes to the rural white Right. Residents of that area. Right. And they're still being policed by majority white men. Right. You know, in most cases. Yeah. So it's become this commercial enterprise like you saw in the film. Mm Mm-hmm. These corporations. Walmarting our prisons. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm glad you made that point about the sort of political neutrality of it because 
a lot of people sitting down to read this with a skeptical mind might think, oh, this is going to be a bunch. This is going to be a bunch of liberal propaganda. Just, ugh. but I nearly fell off the couch when Newt Gingrich, of all people, was interviewed as a <laughs> sympathetic guy, adding to the whole thing. Sympathetic. What's the word I'm looking for? He, he, well, he a sympathetic was voice to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. and he was specifically very, on the topic um, of um, the disparity between how cocaine dealers were treated and how crack dealers were treated. Yeah. They are really one and the same drug, they're just in different forms. And crack was much more prevalent in black communities because it was cheap. Mm -hmm. Cocaine was all over, you know, the place and it was much more expensive and it was kind of, you know, a glamorous thing for the white folks to do. That's true. And he was not at all shy about saying that was at its core an unfair way Mm -hmm. to treat two different forms of essentially the same problem. Right. And then, on the other hand, Bill Clinton is trotted out as a villain in this whole thing. Yeah. An apologetic, you know, an admitted villain. He has gone on to say that he his policies were not helpful in this whole thing at all. And that it was a mistake. That it was a mistake, but that he, you know, absolutely has had a big hand in this. Right. So that's another reason I hope people would watch it with an open mind. That if you, you know, have... Put yourself in a particular box politically and you are generally uneasy with something with statistics or narratives from outside of that box coming at you, then you, sh- you really needn't to be with this one. There's plenty of blame to go around and it goes from right to left and everywhere in between. I hope that a lot of people don't stay away from this film because it makes them uncomfortable or because they think it doesn't affect them. Because I do think this is a social issue that does affect all of us, no matter where we are mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. There was some encouraging data out on the Prison Policy Initiative's website, too, though. The most recent evidence indicates that the rate of mass incarceration is declining, mm-hmm. and it has since just uh, prior to the publication of the new Jim Crow, which is... Michelle Alexander was one of the prominent speakers in the movie, in the film. She wrote the 2010 book, The New Jim Crow, and she's an Ohio State University law professor. Mm -hmm. Her book had a similar message to the film, that the U.S. criminal justice system uses the war on drugs as a primary tool for enforcing traditional as well as new modes of discrimination and repression. Mm-hmm. But her book was written in 2010. We are seeing some decline in the rate of mass criminalization since 2010. Mm-hmm. So that's encouraging. Yeah. So it looks like the rate of incarceration was 1 in 100, and in 2015 it went to 1 in 115. That's good. That is good. But for the most recent data for 2015, there was a 3.9% increase in the estimated number of violent crimes. Mm. And there's been a a lot said recently about the murder rate Mm. has been going up, especially last year. But there was a 2.6% decrease in the estimated number of property crimes Mm. in 2015. The 2015 violent crime rate total was 0.7% lower than the 2011 level and 16.5% below the 2006 level. Mm. So overall, the crime rate is going down, although Mm -hmm. the violent crime rate had a slight uptick. Mm. In 2016. I feel like 2016 Mm -hmm. is an outlier. It's just... 
<laughs> it just sucked all the way around yeah. in, in various areas. So yeah. hopefully that's an outlier and yeah. good trends will continue. Well, in the prison policy initiatives site also stated that the incarceration rate for African Americans fell steadily between 2000 and 2014, while that of whites rose slightly, hmm. although there are still disparities, mm-hmm. uh, large disparities. And a new report by the FBI uh, that came out at the end of 2016 showed the 30 largest U.S. cities saw double-digit increases in their murder rates in 2016. And that's huge. Yeah. And that was led mostly by Chicago and Charlotte. I mean, Chicago has gotten a lot of press. So when we start digging into you know, some of the data, it's so complex Mm -hmm. and there are so many variables. Um, One thing that I found interesting, the Prison Policy Initiatives website has a pie chart Mm -hmm. that is a great visual representation. It, It gives some really good statistics about the American criminal justice system. And like we said, it holds 2.3 million people in 1,719 state prisons. 102 federal prisons, 901 juvenile correctional facilities, Mm. 3,163 local jails, and 76 Indian country jails, as well as in military prisons, immigration Mm. detention facilities, civil commitment centers, and prisons in the U.S. territories. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a huge number of facilities holding a huge number of people. What I found most interesting about the pie chart on their site, local facilities only, broken down into convicted and not convicted. Convicted is 187,000. Not convicted is 443,000. God. And there's a note that states the not convicted population in American jails is larger than most other countries' total incarcerated populations. Wow. Not convicted. That's wild. That is insane. So that is not even in line with the 13th Amendment because it says, shall have been duly convicted. Right. So if you're waiting forever for... Yeah. Well, and it goes back to the section of the film where they talk about Khalif Browder. He was held for three years with no conviction. Yeah. And what's typical is... People don't go to trial. They negotiate a plea deal, right. plea bargain. Because even if they are innocent, they feel the cards are stacked against them, and they're told, if you you can plead guilty today mm-hmm. and get a year or three years, or you can plead not guilty, wait for a trial, that will be a disaster, and then you get 30 years. Right. And so for a punished. lot of people, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. And he was beat up and... Yeah. harassed just for asking for a trial. Right. He said, I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. And that rained yeah. holy terror on him. And he had to wait for the yeah. trial he deserved. And these are Americans. These are our fellow Americans. Yeah. I think, and I thought of this when you were talking earlier about, you know, wanting to know what to do about these problems. There was a lot towards the end of this film that made me think, when you see protests of Black Lives Matter and things like that, it's very easy to fall. Even if you're sympathetic to their cause, it's very easy to fall into a habit of thinking, well, that's their fight and they're fighting it. And to feel like you don't have a place in it. And even if you showed up for it, would you just get yelled at because here you are, (laughs) white as the snow and representing every person who's caused the problem. 
Um, but I think I, I need to get more comfortable. I need, I need to just power through that discomfort and, and be more a part of, Yeah, I don't know how to do that logistically. I don't yeah. know if I need to just go to the local, you know, historically black college, yeah. <laughs> stand in the quad and say, I'm here to help. What can yeah. I do? I, I truly don't know. I don't know, yeah, but I think, well, I think that we I mean, as a people in general need to get more comfortable with standing in that discomfort and feeling right. that responsibility and doing some of the work. Well, even not just the protests, because you know, yes, I think that's important. But how do oh, no, we get the cause po- in general? The cause. How do we get policy change? Right. You know, I should be writing emails about this. Yeah. Not just you know things that are affecting me directly. Right. Uh, well, there because- was a group. I was uh, when our state legislature was in mm-hmm. session. I was up there doing some lobbying with mm-hmm. for an entirely different purpose. Mm-hmm. And there was groups from all different causes up there. The gun toters were up there with their oh, yeah, totally. guns slung over their shoulders, you know, because <laughs> oh, Lord knows the Second Amendment is in dire <laughs> danger of getting snatched out from under you, whatever. There, you know, there were lots of groups up there on the same day sort of, you know, coming in and out of legislators' offices and pleading their case. Right. And there was one group there, and their name totally escapes me now, but their chief focus was addressing the school to prison mm-hmm. pipeline and how easy it is for people of a certain race, particularly, to find themselves going from being in trouble constantly at school for just really silly reasons mm-hmm. and being, you know, immediately that's just what their lot in life is. To once they leave school, they'll end up in prison. Right. And that group was so passionate and so organized and they had like you know signs made and matching shirts and everything they just seemed really pumped about what they were doing yeah. everybody else was just sort of trudging through like right, oh right. The time to make the donuts I, and i i need to go back and figure out who they are and because yeah. now i know what they were there for at the time i was kind of vaguely aware of a school to prison pipeline and yeah and yeah. they're being overpopulated prisons and you know people who didn't really need to be there right. i feel like i have a better understanding of it now yeah i kind of want to circle back to them and be like well, how can i help yeah yeah <laughs> aside from applauding your t-shirts and your signs right exactly <laughs> yeah i mean it's just such a big social issue i mean there's so many parts to it too i mean it's like the film said once you are convicted um that's your scarlet letter for life yeah you know and I mean, we all make mistakes as youngsters. I mean, oh it's not gosh. as easy as saying, just don't break the law. I mean, at any no. given moment, I could be pulled over, and for all I know, I mean, I'm, I'm doing something wrong, and mm-hmm. it's just the fact that I'm not being pulled over. Right. That I'm not charged with something. Right. So if you're putting a particular group under a microscope, you know, you're always going to find something you can charge somebody with, yeah. you know, even if they're not doing anything wrong and you make them angry, yeah. there you go. You can take them to jail, you know? <laughs> yeah. And even in a case where like Philando Castile, that case was so eye opening because that was a case where they were pulled over for like a brake light out yeah. or something yeah. silly, which is, you know, a legitimate reason to pull somebody over. Yeah. Fine. But somehow that ended up him being shot and dying in front of his girlfriend and their child. And that was not a case of they were up to no good. Right. And uh, they were just caught in the act and Mm -hmm. just paid, you know, a little bit too harsh a price for it. They were doing absolutely nothing wrong and were complying with all of the, you know, and they just had a cop who got 
spooked for whatever reason, and a man ended up dead. I mean, that's the kind of thing. You cannot look at that and make excuses for they were up to no good anyway. No, Or, totally. you know, they were gangbangers and they would have gotten no. shot by somebody anyway. No. Or, you know, they weren't complying with instructions. There's mm-hmm. absolutely no nothing you can look at in that case and say, here's why they're to blame for their own misfortune. Yeah. I mentioned the new Jim Crow book by Michelle Alexander, but there are a couple of other more recent books. One that came out earlier this year, a book by John Pfaff, P-F-A-F-F, called Locked In. He uses statistical evidence to show that the United States' highest in the industrialized world incarceration rate did not result from the war on drugs. He says that even if everyone in state and federal prison on a drug conviction were released tomorrow, the U.S. incarceration rate would still be about quadruple what it was in 1970, and that's because uh, the people in prison are there for violent crimes such as homicide or aggravated assault. But that leads me to wonder how much of the violent crime that people are in jail for is a result of the criminalization of drugs. Mm -hmm. Why do we treat drugs like a criminal problem versus a a public health issue? Right, right. How much, if, if we decriminalized drugs, took away the criminal element... How much of the violent crime would go away? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's really hard to definitively say that because, yeah. I don't know, there's just so much there. It's very complex. It's mm-hmm. not a simple... Yeah, so much of the problem arising out of drug use and drug dealing comes stems from the fact that it's illegal. Yeah. That if it was something you could just go to your doctor and get... Or not even to your doctor. If you go, go to CVS right. <laughs> and get... You know, weed, which I feel like everybody now kind of agrees is pretty harmless, you know, next to Even bourbon. Beneficial. <laughs> Even beneficial yeah. in many, many ways. If you could just go to CVS and get that, then, you know, the guy who hands it to you is not putting himself in danger of never seeing his family again because right. he's going to be jailed and nobody's going to get shot over that transaction because it's totally legal and there's no reason for anybody to be angry about it. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, so much of the problem seems to stem just from the fact that it's illegal, not from anything about drugs or people mm-hmm. themselves. And how many decades are we going to keep doing this? There's people dying in front of their children. Every day in this right. news, we see it now. Yeah. People in parked cars just falling out right in front of their grandbabies. So this, this, this is, is not... This is a public health issue. Right. This is not an inner city problem that white people like us can ignore. I mean, right. But I, I mean, this is a huge problem. Yeah. And So people are being put related. away for years for having to do with a substance that we all agree is harmless yeah. and beneficial even. And then the most dangerous thing out there is really, it's also that's dangerous because it's illegal. Nobody's getting heroin, like pure, like here's what's in this. You know, like when you buy your Tylenol, you can look at the label and see exactly what's in it. Mm-hmm. They're getting stuff that's been cut with whatever just to kind of make it, you know, make it more profitable, make, make it more um, make it easier to make, make it more addictive. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It's, we're not getting anywhere with the way we've been doing things. Right. We're making things a lot worse. Exactly. I, that's that's kind of where I am. You know, whether you're saying the jails are filled nationwide because of violent crime or the war on drugs, I feel like they're so interrelated you can't separate the two. Right. And I feel like the root cause 
is the criminalization of drugs mm-hmm. and how we we address yeah drug issues in the United States. Here's a thought that occurred to me when you were talking about crime rates a minute ago. I remember reading a few years ago there was an economist who came out with a book that was way more popular than you would expect an economist to come up with. Freakonomics, do you remember that? But um, I remember one of the chapters in that being something that he felt like he had to handle very carefully for obvious reasons. But if you look at the statistics, there was a major drop in crime that correlates to... Um, women's reproductive rights. And so, obviously, he didn't want to come right out and say, <laughs> abortion saved our cities from wow. a, you know unprecedented crime wave. But if you look at the statistics, and I thought of that when I was watching this documentary, too, when they were talking about crime rates and mm-hmm. how many, like, when you got into the 80s, all these politicians, 70s and 80s, all these politicians were talking about how dangerous the streets were and crime, 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 and, oh, if we don't do something about this. And there was this crazy rising crime rate. Right. Um, and I wish I had the specific numbers in front of me. This is why you're so much better at this than I am. <laughs> but it really did, if you looked at it, it correlated to like, okay, this is when women would have had much more access to um, abortion if that's what they chose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's an obvious result that if women aren't able to make a decision for their own bodies, whether they're going to become mothers or not, that obviously is going to affect poorer communities more than other communities. And so those are the children who would be much more at risk of becoming involved in criminal activity when they get older. Mm-hmm. So it, it would, it's hard with so many factors going into it to know what really caused the thing. Maybe the crime rate did drop considerably because they just locked up everybody they saw. Right. But there's other factors, too. And I think the reproductive rights part of it is important to consider. Yeah, yeah. Especially definitely. as it comes under fire. Yeah. <laughs> again Social and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now I want to go read that book. Yeah. Oh, it had all kinds of great stuff. Stuff about, like, the statistics for um, baby names, why baby names are more popular in other years than others. They Uh go through these patterns of, like, rich folks name their babies this during these years, and then a few years (laughs) later, that's, like, the Poe folks are named. (laughs) You know, I guess Brittany was really hoity-toity for a few years, and then Brittany turned into, like, you know... (laughs) Oh, <laughs> what the what the poor aspirational folks were naming their kid. Man, one other thing that I was thinking about when I watched this documentary was um, I've been listening to a podcast called Undisclosed. And this season, they're focusing on Freddie Gray's killing. Mm. And you know, when we talk about justice, by definition, justice is supposed to be fair and equitable and. I don't know, words evolve over time, and I hate to see a word like justice Mm -hmm. get its meaning diluted. But, I mean, every time I I hear Justice Department, it's this big, complex beast, and I just have this fear that, you know, it's turning out to mean something completely different. Yeah. And, you know, two big takeaways that I, I get from this podcast that came to mind when I was watching the documentary were, um, you know, for large groups of Americans... They feel like they can't call the police when they have a problem, if they're in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, the one of the hosts of the show said flat out, the only time I call the police is if I need an insurance report for property damage. Mm. And that breaks my heart. Yeah. You know, we have this system in place that's supposed to be a place people could call or go if they yeah. need help. Yeah. 
what does this population of people do if they need help? You know, they yeah. feel like they have to handle it on their own. Yeah, and that's another thing that, like, from our position as, you know, middle-class white ladies, we think of police as, like... The good guys. The good guys. That's who calls. That's who you call, and they come and rescue you. And, yeah, sure, yeah. there's a bad one here and there, but overall, they're pretty good. Right. And so I, I've, had, I've thought a lot lately about how my perception of things like police mm-hmm. and um, the country in general would be completely different for somebody who was raised in a different community just a few miles down the road. Yeah. And, in fact, it came up in our um, our little town here has a Facebook page where people discuss various things and one guy had posted and was really really indignant that at the football game somebody hadn't somebody in the stands hadn't stood for the mm-hmm. national anthem right which uh, for me I would assume they just kind of flaked and were lost in thought or something you know or maybe they were quietly protesting who knows but they might have had back problems they might have had back problems maybe they can't stand like keep your eyes on the flag and mind your business it's not exactly it's not for us to decide who right but he was just indignant about it and a bunch of other people piled on about like yeah i didn't serve in vietnam so you could just sit on your ass and blah 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 just a line of people really indignant about it and then there were people saying I, you know, I understand why people wouldn't want to stand for the f- flag, and I don't really. If they're quietly protesting, you'd prefer riots in the streets. Like, which what what form of protest is okay for you? Right. And I chimed in and said, you know, I always stand for the um, national anthem, and I get misty when I hear it, and I stand for the Pledge of Allegiance and all of that. I am an army brat, and I feel very proud when I see the flag. However, I also understand that there are people who don't have such a rosy view of how things have gone in this country and for them specifically in this country. And in those cases, I absolutely understand why they would not want to stand there with their hand over their heart. Yeah. (laughs) And they wouldn't feel, you know, swells of pride about it. I know. And so for those people, I absolutely respect their right to sit down and not do it because really that right is far more important than the flag in the first place. That's what the flag represents, your right to express yourself however you please even if it hurts my feelings (laughs) even if it's not what I would do or teach my children to do it's your right and I'm just gonna you know if you're looking at the flag anyway dude why do you even know who's standing up exactly no I I completely agree with you I mean I feel the same way my father was in the military and is Mm -hmm. retired and you know I, I feel very patriotic and loyal to the flag but when I listen to stories like Freddie Gray's and the community issues in Baltimore and when I watch documentaries like this this is not the America I want mm-hmm. you know I, I, I want it to be better mm-hmm. and and I know it can be that's the thing if I didn't be. feel like it was possible <laughs> yeah I would just ignore the whole cause. thing entirely yeah, yeah. We, we can make it better and just like you said I mean we all have to bring attention to causes in ways that mm-hmm. that make the most sense and you have to admit, whether you agree with it or not, that not standing for the anthem has gotten attention to mm-hmm. these issues. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And it's created discussion. And that's where change that starts. That was the point, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just, I, I feel like I have gotten better in recent years about explaining those things to people who disagree and, and not just digging in my heels and saying, nah, you're a racist, or you're... You know? <laughs> right. Because that doesn't do anything except solidify them as enemies and never right. want to hear what you have to say at all. I've gotten a little bit better at 
calmly presenting my point of view. And that flag thing was a good example. I'm with you. I totally stand for the flag. I love the flag. I get misty when I hear the national anthem. However, (laughs) you know, and I think there needs to be a little bit more of that, a little more of like softening your message in order to slide it through. Right, right. Yeah. In personal Being willing to talk to people who totally disagree with you on something. Yeah. Um, I have friends who just, their entire their entire approach to all things political now, especially now with things being so polarized since the presidential election, is just to vilify anybody who's different and to ice out anybody, whether it's a friend or a family member or whatever, who disagrees. And that's, okay, I understand that impulse, but what have you accomplished there? And also, you're going to disagree on something eventually. For sure. you're going to end up isolated. Right. So you're going to ice me out when we find the topic (laughs) that we are at odds with? You know, that's not how you get things done. I've always felt like personal relationships are the only thing that's going to bring America back together. For sure. I mean, my father, as I mentioned, was an army officer, and he's very conservative. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be very easy for him to fall into the same trap that a lot of his contemporaries have fallen into where Muslims are concerned. Mm-hmm. Except that his particular military journey put him into circles with a lot of Muslims who he now considers friends. And so when somebody pops up on Fox News, you know, talking about how um, Islam is a cancer and it needs to be eradicated or something, no, he's not buying that. And that's because he knows them personally. Yeah. It's not an abstract idea. Right. He didn't give a rip about gay people until he met my gay friends in mm-hmm. college. And then mm-hmm. was like, yeah, you probably should have the right to marry yeah. <laughs> each other. Because you know, I was able to do that. Why can't you do that? So I think knowing somebody who is outside of your demographic description is huge. huge. And you don't do that by slamming doors in people's faces. And right. It's easy for me to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a lot of Muslims in my circle, a lot of black folks mm-hmm. in my circle. But I'm not, I don't want to talk to those coal miners. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But no, they are different from you too in a, in a different way. And so you have to open yourself up to them if you expect them to believe anything you say. And we have to speak to each other respectfully because, I mean, if you just open up by yelling and saying, this is how it is, they are going to show you that same level of respect. You know? Right, right. Better and the internet is a blessing and a curse that way because you can contact anybody on earth through the internet now. It, you know, yeah. with no effort at all. But at the same time, it means that you're open to, like, too much information. Mm-hmm, Just mm-hmm. Half of it completely false. Mm-hmm. And people who feel like they're anonymous and can just call you all kinds of horrible things mm-hmm. without feeling the natural guilt that's supposed to come with that kind right. of behavior. Right. So... Um, you know, back to what you were saying, too, about until you get to know someone personally and and see how their life is... It, you know, it's hard to be sympathetic to to a particular group or, you know, mm-hmm. a particular segment of the population. And, you know, with what we were talking about with the prisons being built in, you know, majority white rural areas, mm-hmm. you know, if the only African-Americans that you're exposed to as a prison guard are yes. people who are in prison... Um, you know, that certainly shapes That's your impression of what black people are. That's horrible. Dangerous and scary. And, and, you know, back to the the police discussion, as well as prison guards, you know, I don't feel like these are bad people. These are good guys who they wanted to be the good in the world, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I feel like in a lot of ways they are victims, too. Mm Mm-hmm. 
you know, I feel a lot of sympathy for not just the, the neighborhoods being discussed in the Undisclosed podcast about Baltimore, but also for the police officers. I mean, mm-hmm. these are young guys, and you know, they're put out there on the street, and you know, they're given rules and regulations, but then when they're out on the street, they're told, you know, well, I know what the book says, but this is the way we do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't go out, you know, wanting to harm people like right. Freddie Gray, right. but they're caught up in, you know, these situations. Yeah. I mean, why are they hyper-policing? Oh, oh you know, one of the things that I was going to mention about that, that podcast, you know, I said there were two takeaways that I had. Oh, yeah. The second one was... The number of closed circuit television cameras on the street in Baltimore and that are monitored by police officer. Hmm. How crazy that, I mean, you live in a neighborhood and you have closed circuit cameras focused on you 24 seven. Hmm. How can we expect people to be treated like that and feel like they have self-worth and right. you know like they're a, an american who's free you step when out being of your door. hamsters 24 7 <laughs> yeah and you know the the podcast this past week went into some of the history of the cameras and you know why they were installed and it was supposed to be a zero tolerance environment you know we're going to put these cameras up we're going to be watching you all the time if you do anything wrong you can be arrested i mean yeah how are we okay with this right Oh my How's gosh. that supposed to inspire you to stand at attention for a flag <laughs> on Friday night? I cannot imagine yeah. walking outside my door or even like me having my window curtain open. Yeah. And knowing that I'm on camera all mm-hmm. the time. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, of course, we're humans. We get used to stuff like that. Why should we have to? Right. I mean, why do these poor people who live there yeah. have to be under constant um, monitoring monitoring and, yeah. by the police? I mean, this is this is not the America that I think most people want or even know exists. Yeah. Going back to the police thing, I think you're right that they, I think far and away, the majority of them go into police work for really noble reasons and are good guys. And I think that when things go hinky <laughs> is, like you said, they're facing situations that most of us can't fathom. Right. And, and, and also, over and over. Over I mean, and over, yeah. constantly. Yeah. But I think that's also influenced by their, their reaction to those, you know, things that we don't experience. Their reactions to those are probably colored by the same kind of things that we were exposed to growing up in the 80s and 90s. All that news footage that they showed in this documentary mm-hmm. that was from news reports that kind of whipped the general population into a frenzy of, oh, we got to lock people up. Oh my right. God, we're headed towards this crazy crime wave. And if the cop down the street who is white like me and grew up seeing that same footage, he, through no effort on his own part, through no right. evil intent on his own part, has been sort of imbued with this sense of black people as dangerous. And so if if Philando Castile and his girlfriend were white like us, would he would that cop have had the same yeah. sort of knee jerk reaction yeah. to shoot instead of go, hey, what's going on? Right. Or, and unfortunately, as the film pointed out, black people 
have gotten that same message uh-huh. that black people are dangerous. Right. They're That's afraid of each other now. That's true tragedy. Yeah. That even within their own community, there's no champion. Um, right. You know, generally speaking. I right. Mean, and so there were older generations of black folks who were saying, oh, these kids, they're out of control. We do need to black, we need to yeah. lock them up. And, and um, just like the, the representative from New York said, um, who was African-American, you know, I was part of the just say no and all of the policies that were put in place as a result of that. And he said it was preventative. It wasn't meant to lock people up forever. You right. Know? Right. But unintended consequences gets us every time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the one criticism that I have of this film is that some people were identified and some people weren't. And oh. I don't know why. Huh. I did not ever see Michelle Alexander's name pop up on Maybe the that's film. why I couldn't place her when she you brought was, her name she up. She has short hair, beautiful glowing skin. Yes. I just <laughs> remember her. Short hair just brought her right back to me. Yeah. She, she was really lovely. Featured throughout. Not well, just a little blip in the beginning. And she I, was I think maybe, and you know, oh, you know, I didn't have time, but I wanted to go watch the complimentary little video that was on Netflix about this Oprah talking to the filmmaker. Oh. Because I wondered if she may have gotten the idea from the new Jim Crow, the book, Mm. because it did, you know, have so much of the same message. Yeah. Um, but Brian Stevenson was also one of the lawyers who spoke in the film. He is in a PBS Brief but Spectacular video. Mm. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Um, I'll make sure that I post it on our Facebook page cool. because I thought that was really good and tied right in with this. Mm. You know, it was some of his personal experiences. Like, you know, don't want to give too much away, but, you know, I thought... It was a really good message, and it's only like two minutes and 30 seconds long. Hmm. It's not very long. Yeah, cool. I'd love to see that. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, that was my only criticism. Sometimes they would put their names green Mm -hmm. and say what they did or who they were or something. And then other times there wouldn't be anything. Yeah. And I was left going, who is that? Like, you know, the white guy at the very beginning, he had a really good quote. At the beginning. Sorry for the papers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> take care of business here. Um, he was a white guy with, I think, a beard. He had tattooed arms. You could kind yeah. of see. But there was never a name for see, him. I never even noticed that. And I, his quote was, white people are the products of our ancestors' choices. Black people are products of what your ancestors did not choose. Yes. I thought that was really good. I thought that was really good, too. That's exactly the kind of statement, though, I could see other white people recoiling from, though, because I've heard mm-hmm. people, and I've said this, too, in my naive youth. Well, my ancestors weren't slave owners. We didn't even get here until after, so we didn't have anything to do with it. It doesn't matter if your family tree actually includes slaveholders. Right. You have, over time, every day benefited from a system that favors you because of your skin color. Right. And I know that's a tough pill to swallow, but that's really the beginning <laughs> of a lot of understanding and healing. I yeah, think. I mean, we're not asking people like ourselves to sacrifice anything here. I mean, right. How is it going to make my life harder to try to, to make somebody else's world a little better? Right. Just acknowledge, just absorb information like this and acknowledge that your life, I remember somebody putting it in such a way that just really struck me. Your life might still be hard if you're white, but your life won't be hard because you're white. Yeah. 
that just acknowledge that you are less likely to get pulled over. Right. Less likely to get shot if pulled over. Yeah. You know, there are things that don't happen to you as much as they would your black counterpart down the road. Right. It's just, that's fact. I don't understand how that's even debatable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, back to what you said about, you know, my ancestors didn't have slaves. Mm -hmm. Um, The very closing statement that Van Jones made, I thought, tied right into that Mm -hmm. and was really important to think about. Um, he said, people say it all the time. How could people have tolerated slavery and segregation? And he said, the truth is we're tolerating it right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so So, true. People like to say, oh, if I had lived during slavery or during the Holocaust or during these terrible things, I would not have let that happen. Well, we are. Turns out I am living through something like that and I'm not doing anything. So, and just because, you know, they're, there are equal rights for all people at this point doesn't mean there really are equal rights. Right. And there are so many things that only look bad in retrospect, you know, that only you only realize were bad in retrospect. Mm-hmm. There were people who knew the Holocaust was going on who were not bad people, but who just felt powerless or yeah. overwhelmed or whatever. And there were people who knew slavery was going on. It was just a fact of life and the way things were. Right. And we didn't, you know, collectively begin to really recoil from that idea until much, much later. Mm -hmm. So I think it it is important, as he said, to look at ourselves honestly and say what comparable situation is happening right now that we are just Mm -hmm. keeping a distance from and not doing anything about. And I just love him. I was not even aware of this dude until election night. And then I was like, who is this guy? (laughs) He has such a way of phrasing things that I'm like, yes, that is so true. Yeah. Um, I was so surprised. I love to see him pop up in this documentary because I was yeah. like, yay, he's going to have good stuff to say. Yeah, he always <laughs> has good stuff. Mm. Yeah. Uh, one other thing, the ho- one of the hosts of the Undisclosed podcast is always joking about he must be turning into a conservative because he always tries to look at the, the fiscal mm. impact of, you know, like, for example, the cameras. I mean, look at what it's costing Mm -hmm. and how much benefit are we getting from them if they can't even use the footage to um, determine what really happened to Freddie Gray, Mm -hmm. you know, for example. When we start looking at the prison system and the fiscal Mm -hmm. responsibilities and what percentage of our tax monies are being spent on the prison systems, you know, uh, I read an article this week about the aging population in prisons and how with the abolishment of parole, Mm -hmm. so many of the prisoners are becoming older and needing advanced medical care. Mm -hmm. And that's the sixth largest uh, prison expense in our state. Right, and with the prisons being filled up with guys who are getting on in years and would probably not be terribly fast or dangerous if released, the younger prisoners are ending up spending a lot of their sentences in jails instead of prisons. Yeah, where there aren't programs to prevent recidivism. Exactly. And those are the ones, the 18, 25-year-olds are the ones who are most likely to reoffend if not given these programs that help them to get on a better path. So, yeah. so that's again, troublesome. Yeah. But here's yeah. another part of this we didn't even get to and it was a big part of it and really where my jaw dropped in this this whole Alec thing. Yeah. A L E C and it what it is is basically a conglomeration of um, corporations and 
politician. And <clears throat> these corporations, um, you know, not only hobnob with these guys and try to make their case for legislation that favors whatever their industry is, in some cases they actually sit down and write it word for word. And write the, you know, the, the fancy legalese uh, language for legislation when it's introduced. And Somebody it's from a, ALEC is writing the thing out yeah. and it says, be it known that yada yada, insert state here. Yeah, it's like a template. Right. So yeah. they can just fling it out to like Kentucky, California, Wisconsin, whoever, and the legislators sympathetic to that cause in those states can just fill in their state. And mm-hmm. so that was really eye opening. And it's a lot of different corporations. Um, it was it, apparently because of public outcry after Trayvon Martin. Um, yeah. A lot of corporations stepped out because of the bad publicity, which yes. that's encouraging. That is encouraging. And one of the corporations that stepped out was one of the large private owners of a whole bunch of prisons. Mm-hmm. So while in the years leading up to that, there had been a whole lot of influence with these prison-owning businesses to get um, legislators in different states to support you know, legislation that favored filling up their prisons with lots of people and funneling mm-hmm. a lot of tax mm-hmm. dollars that way. So you'd think once it got to a point where there was this public outcry and the prison owners are one of the corporations to leave this group, you think, hooray, you know, we're on our way to um, a solution here. What they were replaced by was um, owners of... Uh, like post-incarceration kind of services, like probation and parole, probation, which yeah. is scary because you know. you're just shifting it from right. one. Like, hey, they're out of prison. However, yeah. they are still owned and monitored and yeah, and shackled. I, I do want to point out all the numbers we talked about at the beginning do not include probation and parole. Wow. That's a whole separate animal, which I'm sure is just as huge and complex. Yeah. yeah. So I mean. Yeah. So with that shift, which felt promising at first, but is really just replacing one problem with another, you have some. You have people who are not no longer imprisoned. They're back at home with their family, but they're wearing an ankle bracelet mm-hmm. and being monitored. And being and again, monitored it goes back constantly, to like the just like cameras. TV. Yeah. Being and monitored GPS. constantly. Someone tax oh. dollars are paying for someone to for them to constantly check in with and do all the paperwork and yada yada yada. Why don't we just put a chip under our skin and just go <laughs> from there and have remote RFID readers? Right. I mean, right. gosh. Yeah. So in both cases, it's you know a private corporation benefiting from yeah. us feeling that these people need to be monitored and if if not caged outright, then monitored constantly. Yeah. Liberty um, and justice for all. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So a, a big problem, and I feel like I have a much better understanding of it now, and I just would really encourage people who are skeptical of the premise, I kind of was at first myself, um, to go ahead and watch it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't vilify any particular end of the political spectrum. There's plenty of blame to go around. <laughs> Well, another thing I for thought to add thing. to that, you've done a much better job than I of keeping up with the Facebook page. You post the best, oh. most relevant <laughs> links um, when we have talked about something. But it might be a good idea to um, research some of the organizations that are working on this issue and how, you know, post some links about how to get involved yes. locally with them. Because uh, I would really like to. Yeah, many, like Prison Policy Initiative is one. Um, and then several of the speakers mm-hmm. do run organizations that benefit you know this area yeah i feel like i need to have a picture of van looking at me from wherever i am like what'd you do today are you doing anything (laughs) so thanks for the inspiration van (laughs) 
How about let's end this on a high note? <clears throat> yes, let's. What you got? <laughs> um, my husband had asked me to watch a show with him, and so we started watching Rick and Morty. Mm. He's seen it before, and at first I was like, well, yeah, I'll watch it, but I was not really paying that much attention, and it's an Adult Swim cartoon mm. for adults, obviously. Uh, right. <laughs> and... It's really smart and really funny, especially if you have watched a lot of sci-fi shows, but even if you haven't, but they do pull in a lot of satire from Back to the Future, Doctor Who, all kinds of other stuff, Fantastic Voyage, I mean, just lots of pop culture from when I was a kid. It's just really funny and really smart, and I didn't realize it at first. So I started paying more attention, and I've actually gone back and watched the earlier episodes. Mm. And it's just really entertaining for me. But it's also very human, and there are some dark, very dark parts. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's also, it pulls in a lot of kind of suburban family life. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot there, um, but the episodes are only 22 or so minutes long. Mm-hmm. And if you only want to watch one, I recommend you start with Season 1, Episode 7, and it's on Hulu. And it's called Raising Gazorpazorp. What? <laughs> I don't know. And I watched it again last night. This is the third time I've seen it because it's so funny. <laughs> and, um, I mean, the, the writers of the show are two guys. But in this particular episode, the grandfather on the show, who is a scientist, who normally travels with his grandson, Morty, mm-hmm. and the, the grandfather's name is Rick, so it's Rick and Morty, mm-hmm. uh, they normally travel to outer space and other dimensions, uh, but in this episode, he travels with his granddaughter, and they end up... Well, I don't know. I'm not going to give too much away. Okay. <laughs> he travels with the granddaughter in this episode, and... It's so funny because there are a lot of observations about women uh-huh, in it. Uh-huh. And I just found, every I, every time I've watched it, I see more humor. And <laughs> oh, I love that. When there's so many layers, you watch it again and see new things. It is so funny. Yeah. <laughs> so I highly recommend, if nothing else, just watching Raising Gazorpazorp. <laughs> Very, very good show. Okay. I'm putting that on my list. (laughs) Season 1, Episode 7, right? Yes. Okay. They're all good, but if you just want to watch one, watch that one. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I could use some lighthearted viewing. (laughs) We just wrapped up watching Fargo, which is really well done and sort of darkly funny in places. You know, the series. Uh Uh-huh. It's sort of darkly funny in places, but it's mostly like a lot of people shooting at each other and mm-hmm. <laughs> just bad things <laughs> happening. So um, that seems like it would be a good palate cleanser. My high note this week is pretty lame, but it's making me happy. Um, succulents. I have gotten really weirdly into That's succulent plants. <laughs> and it actually started years ago, maybe 10 years ago or so. We had we were living in an older neighborhood at the time and we were surrounded by older neighbors And the lady directly across the street from us had passed away, and her son was there cleaning out the house and getting rid of some things. And he came over with a bunch of potted plants, and one of them had a plant that he called hens and chicks in it. And I said, what? It didn't look like a hen or chicks. I don't understand. And he said, well, if you, you know, the bigger uh, plants will pop out, will grow these little smaller plants, and if you pull those off and put them in their own pots, then they become hens and they have chicks. 
And he said, they're really easy. You can't kill them. And I was like, sold, because I didn't really know anything about plants. That was wrong, though. I have killed them. (laughs) Didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry. (laughs) I don't have the plant-killing talents that you have. (laughs) Um, No, it sounds like yours were just shocked by a change of scenery. They just were protesting a move or something. I don't know. But, um, yeah, so I was like, okay, that sounds good. And sure enough, I pulled the little chicks that came off of this plant and put them in their own pots and sure enough they grew and then they made their own and these things were just multiplying like crazy and so I kept picking them off and repotting them and you know once I had three or four in a pot I would give them to a neighbor and they've I who knows how many hundreds or thousands of these things have been spawned from just that first pot so I've always had those around and then I don't know why all these years later all of a sudden succulents in general have just caught my eye jade plants and all these different I don't know. They've gotten really popular. Uh, yeah, I think there's yeah. just been like they've been gotten more popular in general, so I've seen more of them around. Mm-hmm. And um, what I really you can even love, buy the, the fake succulents now. Which yeah, seems... oh, I keep getting pulled in by those. I, I was at the Dollar Tree or something the other day, and I was like, oh my god, they have succulents here! And then I got right up to them, and they were plastic. I was like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, to point of they never die, or it's impossible to kill them. That's you true. Buy the fake ones. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Maybe I'll just buy the I think ones. it's because I like sort of fussing over them until they grow. Yeah. You know, like the hens and chicks, they look, the hens look exactly the same from the day you get them forever. Yeah. But then the little chicks, when you pull those off, you can plant them and watch them grow. <laughs> and now you can, I've figured out how to, um, I don't even know what they're called, but there's another kind that you can pull off the leaf and just set it on top mm-hmm. of soil mm-hmm. and it will eventually grow roots and yeah. a little tiny baby will grow out of that. So I, I feel like I was just like scratching this nurturing itch <laughs> where I'm just fussing over my little baby plants Aww. all the time. There are Facebook groups and Instagram accounts and all kinds of stuff uh-huh, that are just uh-huh. dedicated to succulents because you're right. I think there's just been a weird resurgence of popularity. Yeah. My grandmother, like in the 80s, 70s and 80s, had a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, we had hanging in macrame planters everywhere. Maybe that'll come <laughs> back too. Macrame is coming back. Shut up. Yeah. Well, I mean. Oh. I have sold some macrame things really? that I've gotten at Goodwill for good money on eBay. I'll just say. Nice. Yeah, because people are really getting into that whole retro look. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, I think, is my favorite aspect of this whole succulent thing, is my favorite posts in the Facebook groups and my favorite Instagram accounts about succulents are the people who put succulents in weird containers. When I go to thrift shops and yeah. stuff, I'm always drawn to these containers that are just like kitschy and weird yeah. you know like a little smiley face mug or like a little um cow creamer with like a crazy face on it or something uh-huh, uh-huh. i love those things and they look really cute with succulents in them so yeah, now it's just totally. spawned a whole thing of like thrift shops i have to nice. go to thrift shops and see if there's and the whole house is going to be overrun with them eventually but well you know just last night i you know how everybody shares videos on facebook mm-hmm. and someone shared one of those how-to videos but it was about how to repurpose a frame and we have a ton of frames from moving and not putting back on the wall so I watched it and what they actually did is they took a like a, a deeper frame oh well, okay so they removed they like the a backing back. of the frame yeah. and then they took a deeper frame and glued it to the back of the original frame uh-huh. and they put dirt in it and then put a little like wire grid across yeah. the top and then they planted succulents in the dirt and hung it up on the wall that I might have to 
I might have to bust out with that project soon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, and, you know, they just showed them spraying it with a spray bottle. Yeah. Water, so Once they're established, you just spritz them a little bit. Just yeah. wave hello when you go by, and they're good. <laughs> now, I wonder, I guess you would need to kind of press them down in, because once you hang it on the wall, with my luck, they'd all just kind of yeah, fall forward. Yeah, I think I've seen projects <laughs> like that where they say, let them rest on a table for a few weeks. And root, And root, probably. and, you know, that get settled sense. into position, and then you can put it up on the wall, and they're fine that, that way. Because otherwise, be so it pretty. seems like they would just fall out. Yeah, and if they just fall out, then you just go get some fake ones and hot glue them in. <laughs> My dog would eat them, probably. He's so fast. <laughs> anyway, so that's my... Um, my weird obsession here lately, the plants themselves and the kooky uh, containers to put them in. So. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I love that. Excellent. Yeah, so I'm already thinking about putting another shelf out on the porch, and the whole place is going to be overrun with them soon. I'm going to be the crazy lady with all the plants. Can't have too many. Can't have too many. That's true. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that does it for this week. I'm glad we're back on track. Yeah, me too. It's been a while. We've yeah. got some good documentaries coming up, too. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or send us an email at documentaries at gmail.com. If you haven't, be sure to also download our earlier episodes so you can catch up on some good documentaries we've talked about in the past. See you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.